Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, broadcasting live every Thursday evening, beginning at 6 p.m. Central, right here in Panama City Beach, Florida, home of the world's most beautiful beaches. I want to thank everyone for joining me on my weekly broadcast. Each week, I'll feature some of the best instructors, coaches, authors, and entrepreneurs in the golf business today. Starting March 7th, I'll be adding the Coach's Corner panel to the mix, beginning the show with a great discussion, followed by an insightful interview with this evening's guest. So let's get started by introducing tonight's special guest. All right, good evening, everybody, and thank you once again for joining me tonight on Golf Talk Live. Again, I'm uh, your host, Ted Odorico, and I've got a great show for you tonight. And let me just, uh, a couple of quick uh, reminders here uh, before we get started uh, with my special guest tonight. Um, starting next week uh, on March the 7th will be my full broadcast. I'll be going back to the full two-hour broadcast, uh, starting off, of course, as mentioned in the intro, uh, with the Coach's Corner panel will be coming on in the first hour, and then my uh, special interview guest will follow in the second hour. So that'll begin March 7th. So we've kind of here for the last month been doing what I call Golf Talk Live Light, uh, with just uh, my, my special uh, guest uh, interviews. Uh, just to sort of get warmed up for the season. So really the full season starts uh, next week uh, with the return of Coach's Corner. And, of course, uh, golfswing.com will be coming back again this season as the uh, principal sponsor for the Coach's Corner panel. So I'm uh, equally excited about that as well. So, um, And uh, don't forget, I always want to hear from you guys. You're welcome to call into the show during the live broadcast on Thursday evenings anytime between 6 and 8 p.m. Central. The number to call, of course, is area code 646-716-4667. Uh, or you can always email me at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. Any questions or comments about the uh, program, I'll be more than happy to uh, to answer them and uh, and even talk about them here on air. All right. Over the last uh, few years, actually, let me back up a little bit. Uh, for a long time, you know, it seemed we couldn't get enough golf courses to fill the demand of golfers out there. And unfortunately, over the last several years, golf course closures have been on the rise. Um, the question obviously is why is that happening? Well, to answer that question and more are this week's special guests. Uh, first up is Michael Kahn. He is the president of Golf Mac Inc. And he's also a golf business consultant. Uh, joining him on the uh, discussion tonight is Cameron White, a former PGA uh, golf professional, now a practicing attorney in the state of Florida. And rounding out the group is Bill McIntosh, owner of Golf Specialist Inc., a life uh, member of the PGA of America and former owner of several golf courses. So, uh, gentlemen, welcome to uh, Golf Talk Live. Hi, good evening. Yeah, thank you for having us. Glad to be here. All right. Well, thank you, guys. I'm uh, very glad that you were able to join me tonight, and particularly thank you, Michael, for for sort of putting the group together. I know that we, uh, as I was telling Bill just before we came uh, on live, uh, obviously you and I connected through a social media platform, and I found uh, this particular cop, uh, topic obviously very compelling uh, and very important uh, to have that discussion, and I wanted to bring it to my uh, my audience uh, on on one of the shows. So here we are. So Mike, I'm going to start with you if you don't mind, and then we'll, we'll sort of get into the flow of the conversation here as we go along. I think the first obvious uh, I think question that most people would have, uh, as I sort of alluded to, you know, we had a lot of uh, growth for many, many years, uh, both here in the United States and uh, obviously in Canada, and now we're seeing a lot of that growth around the world. 
But for some reason here in Canada and the U.S. Uh, particularly, uh, we're seeing the opposite sort of trend happen. So give us sort of, if you will, just a general overview of the golf course closures by the numbers. Just how many, uh, based on your estimates, are, have closed in the last several years? And when did that start to happen? Well, we, we uh, I, I had a prediction about it on my website that I published around 2000 that really followed a uh, paper that was produced by the National Golf Foundation, the McKinsey and Company, uh, that had stated that as uh, early as 98 or 99, the growth in golf had flatlined. At the same right. time, uh, they still had uh, about 3,000 golf courses on the drawing board uh, through... 2005, 2006, and so forth. And uh, if golf is not growing, and the tee sheets in uh, Florida, for argument's sake, were running at uh, never capacity, but they're running strong enough that the golf courses are all fairly healthy. And courses I was involved in were doing anywhere from 45 to 60,000 rounds per 18 holes, which is uh, pretty good business when it normally took about 35,000 rounds to pay the bills. So they were doing pretty good. Uh, right. The, the last real good year in golf to me was uh, 1997, 97, 98 was the last real good years in golf and everything's been tapering since then. A lot of it is because uh, the baby boomers that were making up uh, a good portion of the golf crowd uh, were starting to disappear. You know, they don't live forever, and uh, there was nobody replacing right. them. And that's where the industry went wrong. They were building co- courses left, right, and center, but the industry had stopped right. uh, inviting new people into the game, and that's where we were getting in trouble. So uh, right. I... Now we're losing 150 to 200 courses a year. And if you look at the stats, I sent that to you yesterday. The stats, uh, like roughly, okay, they're up down to the last person, but we got over 330 million Americans and uh, 24 million golfers, according to all the statistics. we had over 30 million golfers in 1990 on uh, 300 million. There's, what's wrong with this picture? Yep. We had 13,200 yeah, golf courses, and now we've got 15,500 golf courses or something. If you could ever find out what the exact number is. but So that's the mess we're in. Yeah, and, and it's... It definitely has been uh, a noticeable, I mean, it, it's been mentioned several times. You know, we've seen a lot of different articles. We've obviously, they've talked about it and not in certainly a lot of detail, but in some uh, discussions on, we've seen it on the Golf Channel and other sports networks. Um, but the, the truth of the matter is, it definitely is on the decline. The, both um, the playing side of things and also uh, the development uh, of uh, new golf courses and you know, I think you're exactly right in your analogy. I want to ask, um, uh, Bill, I'm going to go to you uh, first here, and then, and then Cameron, I want you to, uh, to chime in as well, because I know both of you have been part of the PGA of America. Um, 
so you you've obviously seen over over the years a lot of great development and growth um before we get into some of the specifics about the courses um i, I want um bill if you can maybe just touch a little bit about you know some of the the trends if you will that are happening in the um playing side uh some of the the decreases what i mean uh, Mike has already touched a little bit, obviously, the baby boomers, but there's other areas as well. Why are we not seeing a, a much of a growth in the golf industry in general? Well, you know, I, I think the atmosphere in golf, in and around golf, and it, it has changed a lot. You know, it used to be where uh, a lot of family life centered around club life. You know, the father played mm-hmm. golf and on, on the weekends, and the mother played golf, and the kids went to the swimming pool, and took lessons and took tennis lessons and that. And that whole atmosphere has changed because now the family is more centered, centered around, uh, you know, kids' activities, soccer and softball and all of the, all of the other things. Right. So I think that's part, of, that's part of it. And then now the, young, the younger people, the millennials, if you will, or the under, under 40s, I would say, um, they've just, since, since golf has kind of, uh, been put in the, in the background to them, they've just lost interest and they've got other things. There's so many other sports and activities that they can do. And I think that's a big part of where, uh, where the decline in, in the playership has come from. Um, how, right. do, how do we get, how do we get that back? You know, I'm not sure, you know, Mike and I have had a lot of discussions about top golf and, and those kinds of things. Right. And, uh, you know, I've been to Top Golf where I've seen young people that have never had a golf club in their hand before um, trying to stand up there and hit golf balls. Is that going to lead into right. them actually taking up the game? I'm not sure. I think I think some of them will, but I'm I'm, I'm not sure if that's going to be the total answer to what we need. Right. Um, I have some theories as well, and I'm going to touch on, on those in just a minute here. But Cameron, I want to bring you into the to the mix here as well. Uh, also, be involved, being involved with the uh, the PGA of America, you've seen a lot of uh, things going on over here. What are, what is your take on that? Uh, on on some of the decline in in playing? Yeah, I I, I would have to echo what Bill and Mike have, have said. Uh, <clears throat> times have certainly changed. I mean, for a while there, like Bill had, had touched on, it was always on on a Saturday. The dads would go to the golf course, and the families would follow. And clubs. Uh-huh kind of got away from that model. Um, well, excuse me, they didn't get away from it, but they, they stuck with that model for too long. And now they're trying to figure out how do we capture that audience? And right. Some, and this decline is just that, is that you've got a game that's been around for, <clears throat> I say over six, 600 years. Mike um, says a lot longer than that, more like five 5,000 years. But the game's not going anywhere. But what, what is right. changing or, or what, what, what is not changing is the mindset of various owners and operators who think that the business model of the 40s and 50s and 60s still is profitable in 2019. And that's just not the case. So right. things, have to, things have to evolve. And owners and operators, developers, they have to evolve with that as well rather than being um, stuck and trying to figure something right. out. 
And so what we're seeing are clubs that are changing their model and adapting and welcoming families. I mean, if they, if, if they create environments where the moms feel excited, then the moms will bring the kids, the kids will bring the dads. Mm-hmm. Now we have a thriving yep. club again. Right, exactly. Um, as I mentioned a minute ago, you know, I have a, a few theories as well, and then, and then we'll continue on with, with about the, the course side of things. Um, I, I agree, Bill, with what you said. You know, you mentioned that you and Mike have talked about things like top golf and that, and I think it's certainly uh, a way to introduce um, people to the game, whether it translates into, uh, you know, long-term play that's yet to be seen. It's still fairly new to the industry. Um, I think one of the other things, and, and I think Bill or, or I can't remember or Mike might have touched on this, um, but you know there's a lot of other activities, a lot of other sports and things out there. One of the things that I think that we don't see, uh, at least not until you get a little bit later on uh, in, in school, is the exposure to golf at an earlier age. Uh, certainly there are some junior uh, programs, some f- fantastic programs out there, but one of the problems is they're really designed – for those that are interested in playing competitive golf. Um, they don't really appeal, uh, or shouldn't say appeal, but they don't really apply to somebody that just wants to go out and have some fun. It's more geared for those that are on a more competitive route, uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they're all wanting to be Aspire Tour players, um, but maybe they're looking at uh, collegiate golf or, or some other uh, opportunity that's out there. And I wonder, guys, and, and I'm going to get each of you to respond on this, we'll go from the same order, Mike, Bill, and, and then Cameron, is... Most of the other mainstream sports like soccer, baseball, football, etc., um, are exposed to the school system at a very, very young age. Golf is one of the only sports that is not. Do you think that would help make a difference if somehow we could get it into the school systems uh, at an earlier time uh, and, and expose these kids so that by the time they get into um, you know, middle school and, and even into high school and beyond – they've been well exposed to it and not just the, the families that traditionally may play golf at a country club. What are your thoughts on that, Mike? And then, and then Bill and Cameron. Well, I, uh, my thoughts uh, are aimed at a solution that can uh, probably rejuvenate a lot of golf courses today. And, uh, you know, I was telling Cam earlier today, we were talking about this uh, thing tonight. In the early days of golf, like I've been in golf since the middle of the 1950s, and there right. was a, a culture and a mentality and a thought process around golf in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and it died in the late 80s, uh, introducing the game of golf to adults. Uh, don't, don't get me wrong here. I'm not ignoring the kids. If right. you get out, adults playing golf, First of all, you've got an instant customer where you teach a kid how to play golf and you're not ready to pay $50 for a round of golf for a long time. If we want to save uh, a couple of thousand golf courses from closing their doors for good right now, we need adults playing golf and we need to have a... The the powers of golf have to have a way of inviting ordinary adults out to learn to play golf. And uh, not by teaching them the swing and, and stance and grip and all that stuff, but teaching them how to play around a golf course in right. four hours and have a good time. And then 
encourage them to improve through taking uh, private lessons from PGA pros who could show them how to play the game better. We don't do that. And that, that was that was our culture uh, 50 years ago. And we would right. bring ordinary people out, teach them to play, not taught to become pros. We taught them to become golf customers, if you want the truth, because we needed customers. Sure. And that's what we did. So our the first lesson we taught people back in 1963, they were ready to come out and try around the golf that afternoon. Right. Today, the PGA, everybody wants people to reach a certain skill level before you let them on the golf course. And, of course, uh, that that just about eliminates a new golfer right off the bat. So that's where I'm coming right. from, to, to rejuvenate the industry to, because it needs golfers right now. We need the kids for the future. But we need right. a 42-year-old man or woman who's never played golf before in their life to to take up the game, let's invite them in. And right now they're screened from the industry completely. That's yep. where we have to be going. So I'm rambling. Yep. I'm sorry. but Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> you're exactly right. No, and I agree with that. Um, Bill, you know, I want you to add to that maybe a little bit as well. I certainly agree with what Mike said. And, and you're right, there's, there's definitely a necessity and a need right now so we have to be able to fill that void that's been, been, you know, that's been sort of collapsing on itself for several years. Um, but I do also think that the, the kids have to be uh, exposed as well. So I think that's a whole different side of it. But I agree with what, what uh, Mike said. But what are your thoughts there as well about um, you know, getting the game and, and exposing people as well at an earlier age to, to sort of get sure that uh, uh, interest? Yeah, no, I agree 100%. You know, when I was a kid growing up and – in once I got into high school in in our PE classes, one of the one of the courses that was taught during the year, whether it's a week or two weeks or three weeks or whatever, was golf. You stood there and they showed you how to hit golf balls into a net. And you know they don't do that anymore. Um, I know that right. there was one company that was trying to start up an after school. Um, it was almost like a franchise. Um, that I don't really think went anywhere, which is too bad. Mm -hmm. I think the PGA is doing a real good job with their um, junior league. It gets kids mm -hmm. interested. It gets kids interested. Mike and I witnessed it up in uh, in a golf course outside Chicago a couple of years ago at Village Links in Glen Ellen, and they started mm -hmm. uh, the pro they started the program uh, the year that uh, we were there, and. They had a lot of participation, and it's great because the kids come out and there's really no pressure. Um, part of the program is instruction. Um, all of the competitions are uh, scramble format, so there's no pressure on the mm -hmm. kids to, you know, I've got to do my best right. on every shot. Uh, they've got, they're given uniforms with their names on them, so everybody feels like a team. Uh, and it was amazing that the, you know, the, parents would come out and they'd actually follow the kids around uh, during mm -hmm. these competitions. I think that's a good thing. Uh, I think the first tee is, should be doing better. They're doing good, but they should be doing better. Um, a, the uh, U.S. Kids and the AGJ, AJGA, um, those are all good programs to get kids involved. But, I, you know, everybody could be doing better. 
Right. Right. Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, and, and you know, what I, what I said earlier, you know, about a lot of these different junior programs, many of that you've just mentioned, Bill, uh, I think are great programs. Obviously, you know, we want to see them do better. Um, but I also think, too, that sometimes we just have to not think so much about a competitive play and just, uh, you know, Mike, as you pointed out, is just sort of get them out there and playing the game, and then we can focus on making them better players uh, or more accomplished players as time goes on. Um, Cameron, I want to bring you in, and, and we're going to sort of start off uh, talking about the courses now and, and some of the communities, how, how the impact and how it affects that. Um, sure. You know, there are literally hundreds of neighbor, yeah, neighborhood golf courses that have been failing, uh, which obviously impacts everything from property values to, you know, community integrity. Uh, we, we just see it, every, you know, as you guys pointed out earlier on, you know, probably 150 to maybe 250 a year, uh, we're seeing them close. So you guys uh, have come up with an approach that you think is, uh, is better. So let's talk about that. Um, uh, Cameron, you started off and then, and then Mike and Bill, uh, by all means, jump in. Sure. Absolutely. If I can add a little bit more to the uh, last topic sure. concerning junior golf, I'm, in, sure. I'm, I'm involved with the, uh, the first team of Central Florida, and um, you're absolutely right, Ted. There's, there's a lot of programs out there for kids that may focus on the competition, but I can tell you in, in the first tee, it's not so much the competition as it is introducing kids who otherwise right. would not have an opportunity to even go to a golf course, and I've witnessed probably four kids – in just our chapter, one was sent to Chicago at last year's KPMG Women's LPGA Championship and got to sit on the stage right. with former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. And mm -hmm. she also um, – so, so here's a girl who was never exposed to the game. She didn't really come from a broken home, but it was a bit of a challenge for her and her neighborhood. Sure. But she was not looking to become competitive. She just wanted to get a better life for herself. Golf was that introduction. So she did that. Yep. There's a couple of kids who were selected um, to, to participate at the, Pebble, at the Champions Tour event at Pebble last year. So and these were kids, once again, they didn't join the first tee to be, be competitive, but just to give them an advantage in life. And that's what golf introduces mm -hmm. to these kids. Bill is absolutely right. There's programs out there, and I believe um, you had mentioned it as well. How can we get it into the into the schools? Well, that kind of rolls right. into your 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 question. Your next question: Schools have to, and city governments and municipalities, they have to recognize that the kids are are the future taxpayers, and that right. the golf course is actually an asset to them. They don't have a problem funding baseball fields, tennis courts, swimming pools. So what's wrong with funding the golf course? That's their biggest revenue. Right. And it can and it can be their right. biggest revenue. Yeah, and, and, and I yeah, I agree hundred percent with that, um, Cameron. You know, we've seen it in fact uh the name slips me, you guys probably know better being a little further down Florida than I am, but um there was an article that came out uh, a while back that I believe it's the last municipal course in Mi the Miami area um, that they wanted to convert to, um, I can't even think of his name now, but uh, one of the soccer stars wanted to convert it into a, a, a soccer program. So he basically wanted to take that land. Uh, and, and, you know, that's a municipal golf course that anybody can play on. 
they want to, you know, basically nix that and put in, you know, a huge soccer complex and soccer field yeah. and get rid of golf altogether. Well, that's literally going to take away that access and that exposure for probably thousands of kids and, and adults as well in that area um, that maybe don't have the opportunity to play at a private member uh, club or, or what have you. Uh, and this is happening more and more. So talk about that um, aspect of it, Cameron, a little bit. And then, as I said, uh, Mike and, and uh, Bill, I want you to jump in as well. But, you know, what what are you guys suggesting that the industry do um, to help some of these communities that are there's, that have been failing? Well, that's a great yeah, question. Uh, and that's a challenge that really every municipality has. But they what they have to do is they have to analyze, um, number one, Municipalities are not in the business. They they don't run, they don't run businesses. They can only right. run the government, and they they don't know how to operate a golf course. And just because they play golf doesn't doesn't make you qualify to run a golf course or run a business. For that for that fact, I mean, I may just because I shop at a grocery store, I'm not an expert on running a grocery store. I can't tell you about supplies right. uh, or inventory. I just shop there, but I leave it to the experts. And that's what municipalities are challenged with. We, they have this large asset. How do we manage it? Now, I know the one that you're speaking of, and there's also, here's the flip side of that. So there are some municipalities who see the value of golf. And here in the Orlando area, a city actually bought a golf course from, from, from the private owner. They overpaid for the property just to prevent the development of the golf course. Yeah. So what developers have done, they said, you know what, back in the 90s, we were building these golf courses as, as amenities to, to these uh, home buyers. We were getting the premium lots. We don't care about the golf course. Then all of a sudden, golf bottoms out. The yep. demand dries up. Now what do they want to do? Now they want to take that golf course, plow it under, and build on it. So, you know, why? Municipalities... They don't know what to do, so they'll owe, they'll owe, overpay for a golf course just to stop the development. And once again, they're, now they're having issues. How do we manage this? And that's yeah. where some have reached out to Mike and Bill and said, "Hey, guys, we need your help because we we bought this or we're we're trying to operate it. We don't know what what we're doing. Can you come help us?" Meanwhile, they have homeowners associations that are. Wondering the same thing. Look, we bought this a minute. We bought this premium lot, and now the golf course is failing. What do we need to do to save our green space? And that's right. the challenge. That's, right. exactly. where we're, uh, that's where we're coming from, Ted, is uh, that uh, you have ho- homeowners who pay premiums for lots around golf courses. <laughs> uh, there's a great example in Florida that's uh, – it's well known Walden Lake in Plant City, Florida. There's 2,200 homes around what was originally a 36-hole golf course, and uh, the golf course operators and the homeowners were never on the same page. It was like almost a Hatfield-McCoy relationship, <laughs> right. uh, except there were there were some people who played the golf course and so forth, but. Uh, through a series of owners who did not belong in the business. Uh, the golf course was failing. The HOA was not willing to support it. Now the golf course is dead. 
and uh, yeah. you've got you got all the homes in that neighborhood now are suffering uh, because property values have taken a plunge. And you got to remember, there's there's at least four stakeholders in a residential golf course. It's the golf course owner, of course, the homeowner. Uh, there's the uh, the tax man himself, of course, and the employee base and so forth. They all go under. And right. uh, if if there was, you know, 2,200 homes, if they was a, a smart, and uh, that's what we tried to do, uh, Bill and I and Cam tried our darndest to get to uh, uh, just get rid of the animosity and sit down and say, hey, let's get our heads together and make this work. Because before, but also, uh, 15 years ago, we also tried to do is, I mean, and to answer your, your question, Ted, is, to how do you get the municipalities to embrace it? You get the right. municipalities to change their way of thinking. And mm-hmm. rather than be adverse or face animosity, not only from the residents, but also the, the course owner, yeah. like Michael said, everyone works together. We build, mm-hmm. a, we, we build something good out of it rather than create all these divisions. And that's what happened to the golf course community that um, Michael was, was referencing, is there was a lot of animosity. A lot of people drew lines in the sand and took a um, playground mentality. This is my sandbox, and no one's going to come, come near it. That's the wrong mentality right. to have. But if you can get yeah, the factions to out. work together – then everyone's going to win. And that's what uh, Michael, Bill, and myself, that, that's what we bring to, to an owner, to an operator, to an association is, look, we can get this thing to work or they'll tell you, Michael or, or, or Bill will tell you, if it's not going to work, this is your next best option. But it's a matter of getting right. everyone to work together. Right. right. Let me ask exactly. you guys this question. Hey. Yeah, I, I want to create uh, just two scenarios here, if we can, just so to get, you know, sort of everything out on the table here a little bit. Um, the first one I want to do is I want to take an existing, uh, and obviously we don't have to, you know, I'm not looking to name names or anything like that, but let's take an existing community uh, that has a golf course, and you can, you know, certainly use uh, any anything that you want as an example. Um, that's maybe in a position right now. They're still open and they're still active, but obviously they're they're struggling. They're having issues. Uh, and it's becoming a problem. Uh, and then the other one I want to do is somebody that's looking to, to start a development such as that. How do they go about starting it in the right way? So let's take the first one first. Let's say we've got a failing property. Um, what do you guys do? What's the first thing that you guys do? Uh, what's the process that you do? And what do you try to you know, guide them or talk to them about that they should be considering um, you know, in the event to, to avoid that closure? I can give you a good example. I live in a golf community that's going through exactly what you're talking about, Ted. Um, okay. The, it, was, it started out as a private equity golf club that the homeowners were not required to be a member of any sort in there. Um, and it's a smaller, there's less, than, there's less than 300 homes in there. And as the membership aged, and dropped out. Um, the equity members became less and less. They tried different things to bring in annual members and summer members and, and so forth and so on. 
um, to try and survive. But when they get down to about 80 equity members, they decided that it was time to try and sell. So they did, and they sold it to a very wealthy guy who uh, spent a lot of money in, in improvements on the golf course, clubhouse, et cetera, et cetera. But he still tried to run it the same way as the equity members mm-hmm. did, you know, very limited outside guest play type of thing. So he failed and sold it to another uh, entity that came in who supposedly were, you know, real good operators. The one principal had a lot of experience and my estimation, some not so good. Uh, and he's failing. So what he did last summer was come to the homeowners association, our POA and demanded that the homeowners pay a hundred dollars a month to him, or he was going to close the golf course. Right. And in the meantime, in the meantime, he stopped paying his required um, association contributions. So what happens then the association sues him, sues him and gets a lien on the property for past due. So now both sides are, are battling each other and nobody's getting anywhere. So right. what do we do? You know, I, I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get the two together because I think a possible solution to it is, is for our POA to purchase the golf course at a highly discounted rate because the original wealthy guy that, uh, that bought it, he doesn't want it back. The guy that's in here now, he doesn't want it, so it's pretty much worth nothing. So if the POA can get their hands on it and then operate it smartly as a semi-private type of facility, everybody's going to benefit. But you can't get the two sides together because they're battling so much. Yeah, and that's become a big problem. Yeah, I've even seen it here in, in Panama City Beach, Florida. Uh, you guys might be familiar with the property, but uh, and I'll be happy to name names. Uh, uh, the Ombre uh, Golf Club here in Panama City Beach, Florida, for many, many years was uh, a stage two site for the Q School. Um, suddenly right. that evaporated a few years ago. They stopped coming here uh, because course conditions, I mean, it was always in pristine shape. Uh, you know, and they just weren't, uh, the management at that time and the, and the ownership just were not keeping it you know, up to snuff, if you will. Uh, a couple of years ago, somebody uh, came in and decided, somebody, I guess, with deep pockets and bought it and just decided to change everything up, and it actually got worse. Uh, and regrettably, you know, we had uh, Hurricane Michael come through a few months back, and uh, now the latest is they're they're closing the course. Um, you know, obviously partially, I'm sure, because of damage, but a lot of it was, in my opinion, mismanagement. Um, you know, somebody came in with a lot of money, and that's great. But the truth of the matter is, whether they knew how to operate the course or not effectively and profitably uh, is another story. And, you know, here we, we've got a great facility and all of these homeowners uh, that are, you know, uh, are not going to have a golf course here before too long. So, yeah, you're, um, uh, Mike, I want to You're come- on the money with that. Yeah, you're, you're on track with that, Ted. Um, between <laughs> well, Bill and I, we've looked at hundreds of golf course financial statements from all over the country over the last uh, uh, dozen years for sure and um, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, a lot of things about golf course operations the cost of keeping up a golf course and so forth that people don't realize and they have to know and HOA sit down and talk about the golf course they have to understand that 
keeping up a golf course is like looking after a two-week-old baby that never is anything but two weeks old, and that's forever. Right. Right. And right. So, so, uh, and uh, I, I can tell you to, to find a, a financial statement from a golf course today that has a contingency account in place to redo the clubhouse roof, to upgrade the irrigation system, to recap the parking lot, uh, to redo the greens, you know, sometimes the greens every 20 years need to be regrassed and so forth. They don't have that right. money. And uh, that's the mismanagement. And that's that's an area where there's been people in this business and probably, I, I don't know, I could throw out a number, 60, 70% of the people in the golf business right now don't belong in it. They don't know what they're doing, right. and I hate to say it that way because there's some very smart people in the business, but they don't know what they're doing. And uh, one day the superintendent walks in with his chin on the floor saying, our irrigation system just quit, you know. Uh, well, you know, get some glue and fix it. Well, it's a little more than that, and that's what happens. <laughs> and they're not prepared right. for it. But what I'm getting at yeah, is... So- uh, yeah. what, I'm, what I'm getting at, it, the point I want to make quickly, and then I'll shut up. Uh, they don't sell the game of golf uh, because of the benefits of golf. The benefits of being a golfer are physical, mental, and social, and there's nothing else like it. It's the only game right. that uh, three three generations can play on the same playing field at the same time. Grandfather father and son could play around and golf together at the same time. You can't, no other sport, you can have an 80-year-old and a 50-year-old and a 30-year-old playing hockey or soccer or whatever. It ain't going to happen. And right. there's, I mean, evidence, there's evidence that golfers live five years longer than people who don't play golf. Those are studies done in Europe. Look it up on Google. You'll find the stories all over the place. And to add that, Mike, and add, add yeah, you know, and to add to that, Mike, um, I just read an article the other day. Golf is actually a contact sport. Right. You make more contacts on the golf course. I mean, I remember growing up at, at a semi-private club in a real small town, very small town, probably 20,000 people at the most. But I met – I can't tell you the number of judges, attorneys, other and other professionals, yeah. Yeah. business owners that kids can come across – by just giving them access to a golf sure. course. And so golf is a contact sport. People don't realize that. Yep. Right. Absolutely. Well, you, have to prove, you know, yeah, a few years ago, my, again that, sorry, go ahead. A few years ago, my wife and I and son were down playing a golf course in Jupiter and we got uh, paired up with a guy that, you know, just an average guy. And he turned out to be, uh, a real influential person um, that had patented uh, s- patented something and became very wealthy. And he and I got together and tried to buy a, a, a golf course down in the West Palm Beach area together. So, see, you just never know what's going to happen. Right. There, yeah, there's no, there's no um, you know – it's been proven time and time again that that golf has has been a very effective business tool for a lot of 
executives and 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 business owners for for I mean generations. And you're exactly right in the point about there is no other sport that you can have. Uh, you know, a grandfather and a father and the son uh, go out and play a sport together that they can all. Uh, you know, play and have some fun at that's, that's, you know, going to be something that they can, they can enjoy for, for many, many rounds. Um, I, I want to go back to just what we were touching base on a little bit. And, and this time I want to flip it around. Bill, I'm going to go to you first and then uh, Cameron and Mike, uh, by all means, you can jump in as well. Um, I, I want to talk about the new development. Obviously there is some still new development. So, you know, as you guys put your, your thinking cap together and you've got somebody that that obviously has some experience in running uh, uh, a golf operation, or is able to bring the right team in, uh, and they want to put his development together. What are the key things that you're going to look for, um, Bill, uh, when you're talking with this particular client uh, and saying, okay, this is what you want to do. These are things that you need to make sure are put in place, and so on and so forth. So walk us through the process for somebody that's looking to uh, open a development uh, golf course. Well, probably the first thing I would do is tell them not to put the golf course in. I mean, it's just at this point in time, it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. But then if right. they decide, okay, I'm going to go ahead and do it anyhow, the first thing I would do is tell them don't make it too difficult because I think that's what's right. happened to a lot of developments. They've gone in, you know, they I want to hire Jack Nicholas and Tom Weisskopf and right. all of these all of these high-profile guys, the Greg Normans, and they build golf courses that are too long, too difficult, and too expensive to maintain. And I would say, don't do that. I was going to build a golf course in uh, development in Maryland, and I worked closely with the, with the developer and brought in a different architect than what he had, and we did exactly the same thing. And we took a 7,200-yard golf course, and took it down and took out those back tees that nobody was going to play anyhow and put it in there right. and made it shorter, made it 6,800-yard golf course, still with four sets of tees um, that people could play, and we widened the corridors and just made it more friendly for people to play. Less cost, of, less yeah. cost to build, less cost to maintain, and we felt that we were going to be successful with it. Right. A great point. Um, Mike, you, I want to ask you something here along this lines as well, but I want to, I want to mention something. I know that you uh, uh, were a member of the, uh, the uh, Canadian PGA and obviously were up in the Peterborough area for a number of years, uh, uh, teaching uh, a lot of players and, and particularly a lot of women. Um, so you're, you're quite familiar with, uh, with uh, Canada. Of course, I'm Canadian as well. Um, Whatever happened to some of the executive courses? You know, we used to see a lot of uh, what I used to call a starter course. In fact, that's what I learned on. That's what my father took me to was an executive-style course. Um, and instead, we're seeing all of these, as, as Bill just mentioned, all of these resort courses. And, you know, and, and I'm not knocking any of the developer or any of the, um, the architects or so forth. But as Bill pointed out, they're, they're just too difficult for the average person to play. Um, you know, is this an area that maybe the industry needs to take a serious look at is bringing more courses in that are inexpensive to operate and run and are easy enough that the average person, I mean, we all know this being in the industry that handicaps have not come down, uh, but a, a smidgen in probably the last 30, 40 years. So why are we building these, you know, 75 and, and, and plus hundred yard 
golf courses when the average person can't play them? Well, Ted, the busiest golf course uh, I worked at was way back in 1960. It was a golf course in uh, Asian Court, Ontario. You're Canadian. Whereabouts in Canada were you, by the way? I was uh, born in Hamilton and uh, born in Hamilton oh, yeah, okay. and uh, grew up in in uh, Burlington much of my life. Oh, oh yeah, okay. Oh, it's in Dolphin Buddies from down there, but uh, uh, Tavisander Golf Club, Ancient Corner, Ontario. Nineteen. I was there from nineteen fifty-seven till sixty through sixty-two. It was a fifty-four hundred yard par seven. Okay, with one set of tees. There wasn't four sets of tees. Uh, we had a six-minute tee sheet, and I was a starter at that golf course, okay? And uh, I'm like 17 years old out there sitting on a, a bench, uh, starting them in the dark and, and still teeing them off in the dark at night. Six minutes, 40 players an hour. And... Uh, in the pro shop, we had a hundred sets of rentals, rental clubs, seven club sets, yep. and they were out every day. That's that is the game of golf I was uh, uh, I, I first got into the game that way, and uh, there was all kinds of people come in in jeans and plaid shirts, and you know they're uh, around the golf, a set of clubs. I need a half a dozen balls, da da da, so forth and so on. And that's that's the golf where that's where I got started. And uh the executive golf courses, uh, I had an executive golf course that was thirty three hundred yards long in Peterborough. And the reason that I learned how the reason the way I learned how to teach people to play golf is we opened in nineteen sixty three and nobody showed up. We had all these roads in radio and billboards and everything, you know, bragging about our golf course was opening and nobody showed up. Because in 1963, nobody in Peterborough, outside the two private clubs, played golf. <laughs> so we, had, we had a summer of no business. So I, right. I, uh, I, I said, I need customers. So I started these learn-to-golf programs and taught adults, not kids. I couldn't afford kids. I needed people with real folding money to come in. So, uh, right. and I learned when I ran my ads, I ran my ad, learned to play golf. I ran it in the third week in February, and I ran it on a special page in the Peterborough Examiner. I, I told Cam about it the other day, he's jaw dropped. <laughs> I ran it on the obituary page, okay, because. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I was the I was wisely told by someone else. It was my my idea that if you get the first page that women turn to in the local newspaper every day is the obituaries, and I was the only ad on the page. And I my ad said, "Learn to play golf in five easy lessons." And uh, wow. I only originally only wanted a couple of classes, you know, like two one-hour classes. I wound up with three classes every morning, uh, five days a week, and every evening. And uh, <laughs> eventually, I was starting seniors and juniors and women and business women and housewives and the whole works. We were starting two, three, four hundred brand new golfers every year, and I did it for twenty-five years. And we took wow. an empty golf course and turned it into a six-hour <laughs> round on a Sunday. So there you go. 
you know, Ted, you were asking That's, how can, you know, with, with, with development and if someone wants to come in with a development, there's actually some very good things going on right now in the industry. And I, I saw one out in Arizona where it was a resort that was closing down. It was a resort that the hotel was dilapidated, but they brought in an architect and the owner put his ego aside and let the architect come up with something and created a reverse nine executive course. Hmm. And it rejuvenated the entire, not only the, the resort did it rejuvenate, it rejuvenated the entire community. And now there is a lot of demand for that type of golf um, because it's a nine, it's, it's 18 holes, reversible nines, and it allows even working people to come in during, during lunch, play a quick nine holes, grab a bite to eat, they, and they can go back to work in an hour and a half. There's another yeah. uh, resort in North Carolina who has basically the architect for that one, the, um, the ASGCA uh, architect, it, I believe it's called Longleaf, and he's created different sets of tees uh, for the families to come out and play. So they're not playing a 7,000-yard golf course. So I think the – the way that we're going to attract more people is repurposing golf courses because, like Bill said, no one play, no one's going to play the back tee of a 7,200-yard golf course, but they'll play the back right. tee of a 6,400-yard golf course. And that, and so what are they going to do with that extra, extra space? They can repurpose it. They can redevelop it. There's a golf course in uh, Jacksonville, Florida, where it was yeah. – it was, you know, and they repurposed that, and now it's the host of a um, tour championship, the Web.com tour championship. They reroute it, right? And repurposed parts of it. Atlantic Beach Country Club. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And so, I mean, that was on the cusp of failure, until the developers or some members went to an architect and these investors put their egos aside and let the architect. Yeah. So if they, and see, once again, that's the thing of rallying people together to work together, putting egos aside and realizing the 7,500 yard golf courses are long gone. No one has time yeah. to play a 7,500 and be happy, but right. you know, I'll, well, I'll play a six, you know, 64, 65, 6,800 and try and make it fun. Right. And, and that's, that's a great point. Um, You know, I can remember, you know, as, as you guys have, you know, growing up and, and seeing, uh, you know, courses that were in, um, you know, 54, 55, you know, 62, 6,400 yards. uh, And obviously, you know, I was a pretty long ball hitter even then. And, um, you know, even they would, would put up a challenge. Um, and, and I know here, another course in our area, uh, windswept dunes. Now it's probably not anymore, but at one t- time it was the longest golf course in Florida. It was uh, just over 7,800 yards. Uh, and I've played it a few times over the years, but to be honest, you know, to go to your point, you know, I, I just don't have time, um, you know, even though I do teach golf, you know, I don't have time as much time to play anymore when I do. 
Um, you know, I'm not going out to a 7,800 yard golf course uh, and, and spending, you know, five plus hours uh, in, in, you know, delays and, and whatnot with everybody else out there um, that's struggling with their game. So, you know, I think that the industry has to recognize a couple of things. I think they have to recognize, first off, that, you know, as you pointed out, those longer golf courses, yeah, they look great. They're nice. Uh, they're beautiful. I mean, who doesn't love a, a beautiful-looking golf course? Uh, but they're not practical, especially in today's climate. We've got too many people that have to spread their time in other areas, uh, and they're getting turned away from golf because what they're hearing is, well, you know, it's going to be anywhere from four to six hours to play around. Well, I don't have four to six hours, but they might have an hour and a half or they might even have two yeah. hours. So is that a direction, um, uh, Cameron, that, that you're seeing uh, that maybe the industry needs to take a, a serious look at and, 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 and going that route? And that doesn't mean you get rid oh, of all absolutely. these other courses, but... Take a look at what happened with um, up at Pinehurst, Gil, Gil Hans. Pinehurst hired Gil Hans to come out and make a little short executive golf course. And right. look at... Bandon Dunes. He, um, at Bandon Dunes, um, the gentleman, Mike Kaiser, came in and built an executive golf course. So, I mean, these executive golf courses are popping up. Those are the things, and they're also introducing tech technology into these golf courses. Right. So now, wow, you have technology on an executive golf course, You've got other platforms, so instead of a golf cart, maybe you have a skateboard that you can zip zip around in. So you've got you've got the concept is there. You, but it's once again, it's a matter of changing the the mindset and the mentality of some of these course owners and operators in saying we have got to figure out a way to do this now. Why not? Why not have that little executive golf course, say at Bandon Dunes, where you can bring bring your family? And now right. the dad, you know, and now and take a look at Pebble Beach with the Peter Hay nine hole golf course. Kids play mm-hmm. free, so yep. you know they don't have to pay five hundred dollars around to play to play Pebble. No, they can still have that experience of playing a nine hole golf course that is in excellent condition, and it's going to be much more profitable for the owner because. His maintenance costs are less. His overhead is going to be a lot less. His 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 water because water is a very um, scarcity in in parts of the country. So now you have less less ground that has to be maintained. Now that's going to put more money back in their pocket. And once these right. owners get that kind of mentality, that's when you'll. You know, we're, uh, did, we're slowly. One of, the, one of the stumbling blocks in there is. Uh, you know that, like I uh, spent 30 years at, with an executive golf course, and uh, it was the uh, uh, one thing I learned was not to chase the scratch handicap. Don't even invite them out because I didn't want them because all they did was complain about everything. Uh, my business uh, in Peterborough was built up of people who played golf strictly for recreation. Oh yeah, uh, and uh, I kept mm-hmm. records of the Saturday morning golfers for almost 15 years. I had a score sheet for them because we had. I wanted to. Get, I, I wanted to understand the behavior of these people. 
in a, in a par 60 executive golf course, there's very few that shot under 90, which is like a, right. 105 on a full-length golf course. And uh, these people were just playing, playing golf to enjoy themselves. If they got a par or a birdie, you know, it made their whole weekend. And right. uh, I didn't, I didn't care what their score was. I didn't try to make pros out of anybody. I, I really, I have to admit, the only reason I wanted them is because I needed customers. And, right. uh, and by the by the mid seventies, my place was was such a crazy, busy place, and there was nobody could play golf at the dam, and. Uh, uh, all the good players, all the hot, all the hotshot players. I sold a lot of golf clubs in those days, and I sold hundreds of seven club starter sets, hundreds of sets every year. People just come out and buy the first set of golf clubs for ninety nine bucks, you know, with a bag and two woods, and four irons, and a putter. That was the way they started. Right. You know, that doesn't happen anymore. No, one and and one of the other things too, you know, and, and I don't like to, you know, criticize the industry, but you know, another thing too is is obviously the equipment. I mean, it's great to see, you know, down at the PJ Merchandising Show. It's great to see all these these new products that are coming out. But the truth of the matter is, you know, when you look at uh, things like the time factor that that you know the generations coming up, they've got other outside interests. So you know, a four to six hour round of golf is not in their wheelhouse. The other thing is when, you know, when the, when the manufacturers are coming out with another, you know, four to $500, uh, you know, driver, um, that puts another, you know, group of people out. So, you know, there's a lot of factors that are playing into here. It, it's, you know, obviously the, the ge- older generations, you know, that are, have either stopped playing some of them due to health reasons, or they're just not able to, to get out there for some reason, or they've passed on. Um, we've got to do something to get the next generation, and not just the kids, uh, Mike, as, as you had mentioned, but the, the people that have that disposable, uh, disposable income. There but we need go. to take an there approach. Yeah, yeah, we need to have an approach that um, gets them out there, gets them excited about playing, and I think by, by making it so difficult, which the industry has done easily over the last 20 years, um, I think that this is what's turned a lot of people off. I mean, and I, and one other point I want to make, and then Bill, I want to get you to, to, to chime in here again as well. Um, you know, as, as somebody that's in the golf profession, one of the things that has kind of disturbed me a little bit is, you know, when I turn on my television set, the only, uh, other than obviously local news, the only exposure that I even get to golf is the major tours. I don't see anything... Uh, any other advertisement, uh, and I'm not talking about equipment, but I'm just saying there's nothing else about golf to, to want to get me to come out and play as a consumer. Um, you know, I'm not good enough to play on the PGA. I'm not even maybe good enough to play on the Champions Tour. But, you know, as a consumer, I want to, you know, be involved in golf. So there's really nothing out there to expose people well, other than that. on the tour. Here's, right. Here's, exactly. one of, right? here's one of the things that uh, that I've been saying for a long time. I'll I, I shouldn't say that they're how stupid the industry is for bringing in new players. Uh, all the advertising and everything you see about golf, about taking up golf, about first tee and all that, is you only see it on the golf channel or right. during a golf event, okay? Now, remember, I ran my ads on the obituary page. Nowhere near the sports right. page, okay? 
because (laughs) I wanted to get the most people. I would love to see an ad to get you interested in playing golf on Family Guy, okay, or or The Simpsons. If you were in Cumberland, if you want to get after the 99% of the population that don't play golf and don't have golf in their, even anywhere in the front or the middle or the back of their mind, they're not going to see it. And they don't tune into those stations and those shows because they're not interested. I, so right. how do you get at them? You, you, go, you go get them where they are. And that's not on the golf channel and not on the, the tour events on the weekends. Because right. 90% well, of the people watching are already golfers. Right. And, and, and Bill, that, that raises another, uh, Bill, that raises another, another quick point, too, and that is the, the exposure that the average person that, that Mike's talking about uh, obviously is already in golf, but the, even the few that aren't in golf that maybe happen to tune into the golf channel – um, what they're seeing is unattainable in their minds. Like, you know, I'm not good enough to be on that tour or I'm not good enough, so it's not for me. So right away, it, it, it implants a negative into that person's mind. And if the golf courses want to, um, you know, bring up their bottom line, as it were, obviously they have to make some of the changes that you guys have talked about here tonight and have to uh, sort of repurpose uh, areas that, that can be done. But I think they also have to reach out to the community and not just the corporate uh, but out the, the community through different community programs uh, and expose their areas uh, to golf and not just at a, at a competitive level, but just, you know, having more uh, events at their golf course, exposing them to the facility. Uh, and I think that's something. What are your thoughts on that, Bill? Oh, I, yeah, I agree a hundred percent, you know, and, and going back just to touch a little bit on the equipment sure. stuff, that's a that's a discouraging factor when somebody says, "Well, I'm going to start playing golf," and all of a sudden they go into a golf shop and the first thing that they see is a $500 driver and a $50 right. dozen dozen golf balls um, that they're going to go out and, on a 7,500-yard golf course and lose. You know, so right. where's the incentive there? But no, you're, no, you're absolutely right. You know, and that's one of the things that Mike and I have tried to do over over the years is get. Um, golf courses that we've been involved with go out to the community and sell some of your services. I used to go to the Rotary and some of the other civic organizations. Yep. Um, you know, we used to have Lions Club tournaments at, at some of my courses yep. and do that and and get those civic organizations involved and expose your golf course to them. I mean, what better way? Yep. So you get, you know, a bunch, you're sitting in front of, you know, 100 Rotarians once a month and you do that and then they go to their clients and say, you know, boy, this guy from, you know, whatever golf course it was, he did a great job uh, explaining things and gave us some pointers on what we sh- what we should do. And, you know, I'm going to start playing out there. What better way to do hey, that? Bill, yeah. tell, tell Ted about that crazy dollar weekend at uh, Glen Ellen. That was phenomenal. Oh. Glen Ellen, Village Links in Glen Ellen is a municipal golf course that Mike and I ran for four months. They were transitioning their general manager, and they did a uh, a have one for have one on us weekend, where they hmm. came out and they set up set up a tent and had barbecue, and uh, a lot of different events. You could come out and hit range balls for free, uh, bring your kids. They had kids competitions on the putting green. 
They gave lessons for free. They had a long drive contest. And, you know, they sold, you know, dollar hot dogs and dollar beers and that kind of thing. Um, right. And they ran it on Friday evening and Saturday. And the the year that we were there, they had 6,000 people that participated in that. Wow. And that's, that's you know, fantastic. That's just, yeah, that's something. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a municipality that does it. You know, why can't a private ownership club take and you do something like that and have great exposure and what kind of cost them? Not a whole lot. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, well, guys, I want to, I want to thank you uh, for joining me tonight. I know there's probably a ton more that we can talk about, but unfortunately uh, I've got to wrap up. Um, but uh, Mike, I'm yeah. going to give you uh, each an opportunity to some final thoughts and uh, let the folks know that are tuning in, if, uh, particularly if they're involved in the golf industry, maybe they belong to a club uh, that's maybe having some issues right now, or uh, maybe they're thinking about, uh, you know, moving into a golf community and some of the things that they need to maybe look for, but um, where they can get in touch with you guys uh, to maybe get some more questions answered. So, Mike, uh, some final thoughts, and, and then Cameron and Bill, and then uh, at the same time, please let the folks know if they want to reach out. Yeah, sure. Well, this is Mike. Uh, I really believe that the the golf industry is sitting on a powder keg right now of probably as many as 10 million Americans who would take up golf in a heartbeat if they were invited. Understand the economics of 10 million new players who will uh, spend about at least $10,000 each into the industry over the first five years of the game. That's a that's a pretty handsome prize to go after for the industry, and uh, that's kind of my thought process. Uh, at the same time, uh, Bill and I and Cam are available to help communities and golf course owners, uh, municipalities, and so forth sort out their golf course, find out uh, through a good analysis of the golf course. Uh, its neighborhood, the customer, and so forth that it caters to so they know exactly what they want, right they have, exactly what it needs, and if it does fit, then they can sustain it for the next 100 years. And that's that's really what we're here to do. We're not right. so much just to save every golf course because there are some poorly planned, poorly placed golf courses that will fail. Most of them, I think, that we can rejuvenate and uh, keep alive for 100 years, and that's what we'd like to do. Perfect. Um, Mike, very, quick, Ted, I'll yeah, echo Mike that. very quickly. Oh, no, I'm, I'm sorry. Go right sorry, ahead. Go ahead. No, no I, I want to echo say, what Mike. Um, please go ahead. <laughs> no, I just wanted to echo what, what Michael had said um, because I practice in the area of golf course property law, and so, you know, we can – we can analyze it from, from many different angles, and we, we do see some strong opportunity to help the, the owners and operators who, who may not know where, where they can turn or what their next, next steps are. And, we're, and uh, Michael has the contact in, information, and we kind of give it a different perspective based upon our, each individual's ex- experience. Right, exactly. Um, Bill, any final thoughts, and then and then you guys can uh, can let the folks know how they can reach out to you. Uh, Bill, any final closing thoughts? Yeah, no, I I just want to reiterate exactly what Mike and and Cameron said that you know we've got unique capabilities and different experiences that we can uh, 
we can help the different uh, municipalities, HOAs, POAs, and golf course owners. And the best way to best way to get a hold of us is either go to Mike's website, golfmac.com, email Mike at golfmac.com, and you could call him. His phone number is on the website. Call him. Uh, you know, we'll spend a little bit of time with with everybody at no charge to try and you know see if they think that we can help them or not. Perfect. Yeah, we invite well, we invite the uh, HOAs and, and members or concerned citizens or city council, whatever, to a conference call where we can have an open discussion about their situation and so forth, and uh, possibly uh, we'll have some suggestions right up front. But uh, Golf Mac is spelled G O L F M A K, uh, and uh, if they send an email to me, we'll always answer them and. Uh, if we can save a few, we will. We've got to Perfect. do this right now for sure. Well, I think you guys uh, are doing a fantastic service to the industry. I mean, it's you know, it's great. Uh, one thing I love about the golf industry is there's so many different opportunities business-wise and others, and it's a shame to see a lot of these uh, great courses out there that have struggled and, and golfing communities that, that are struggling out there. Uh, for one reason or yep. another, and and sometimes they they need a little bit of help. So I appreciate you guys coming on the show tonight and discussing a little bit. I know we can't get into everything uh, here in an hour, but um, we certainly uh, touched on uh, some important issues. And uh, if they want to learn more and, and yes, get into yes. a more in-depth discussion with you guys, uh, they can go to uh, to your uh, to your website and and all the contact information is there. So, uh, Mike, Bill, and Cameron, thank you very much for joining me tonight on Golf Talk Live. It's been a pleasure, and I hope you guys will come back. Thanks, Ted. Thanks Anytime. for having us. Yes, sir. Anytime. You thank betcha. you very much, Ted. All right. I appreciate it, guys. You have a All great right. uh, great evening. And again, thank you for joining me tonight. All right. Good luck. Take care. All right. That was my very special guest, uh, Michael Kahn, president of Golf Mac uh, Inc., and Cameron White, a uh, former PGA uh, golf professional, uh, now a practicing attorney in Florida. And uh, finally, rounding out the group was Bill McIntosh, uh, owner of Golf Specialist Inc. Uh, also a lifetime member of the PGA of America and a former owner of uh, several golf courses uh, throughout the area, uh, obviously providing a very valuable service, uh, combining their 150-plus years of experience in the golf industry uh, through various uh, components, uh, wanting to uh, really save a lot of uh, communities out there that are, have been struggling for the last several years. Some are uh, in, in uh, difficult shape uh, through their HOA and, and POA, and uh, the courses, of course, have, have had some issues as well, and, and they're uh, willing to put their uh, vast knowledge and experience together um, to help the folks out. So if you go to golfmac.com, uh, all of the information is there to contact uh, Mike and, and the gang, and uh, certainly uh, I, I would strongly suggest you do so. These guys have, uh, have really put a lot of uh, thought and, and uh, passion into to helping uh, a lot of out there in the golf industry that are struggling right now. So I hope that you'll take that opportunity. Uh, again, I just want a final reminder uh, that next week, uh, March the 7th, uh, we'll be bringing out the full uh, show, if you will, uh, the return of Coach's Corner uh, panel will be coming on next week, uh, followed by my interview. Uh, so I hope you'll come back and join me then. And uh, I want to, again, uh, thank all of the guests tonight for, for coming on and sharing their 
story with my audience, and I know that you guys uh, got some good information out of there. So uh, I'm Ted Odorico, and thank you for joining me tonight on Golf Talk Live, and I will see you next week right here on Golf Talk Live. God bless everybody. Thanks for listening to this evening's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. Remember to tune in each week at blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live. If you can't join us live, check out the on-demand section for previously aired broadcasts or listen on any of the following social media platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox, TalkStream Live, and of course, Spotify. To get updates on future shows and upcoming guests, be sure to visit the show's Facebook page, Golf Talk Live Blog. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ted and Buck CEO. Remember to join me live each week for another great broadcast of Golf Talk Live. See you next time. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs>